0: God has not forsaken us. No matter what's going on in your life, no matter what kind of punishment may be coming in the future, God is not finished. And do you understand that you are in a holy place where a holy God is doing holy things despite what is happening in our culture? There is a little reviving there is a little healing of the land.
1: Welcome to Resonate with Trent Griffith, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. I'm Aaron Paulus. Today, we'll hear another message on revival. You know, revival is God bringing life where there is stale and lifeless religion. Does your walk with Christ ever feel like that? If so, you'll want to stay with us as we find out what God's response is when we humble ourselves, pray, seek God's face, and turn from our wicked ways. You know, a lot of people say there is no remedy for the spiritual disease that's affecting America. But in Christ, there is hope. Here's Pastor Trent.
0: God is so serious about marriage, he wants us to protect it. And so he's put boundaries around it that govern our sexuality. And so because God loves marriage so much, he loves your marriage so much, he loves your children so much, he loves the future generation so much, he has said, don't violate the sexual standards. Keep your sexuality between that one man, one woman, one lifetime relationship, and it will go well for you. And so therefore, the Bible has some things to say about pornography and about lust, and about premarital sex, and extramarital sex, and homosexuality. He calls all of that sin. Sin that the Bible says can be forgiven and cleansed if a person will repent and believe the gospel. So what is marriage? Marriage is a holy covenant initiated by God. And conditioned on an irrevocable promise to pursue oneness with an imperfect person of the opposite sex for a lifetime for the glory of God. That's what the Bible teaches about marriage. And we are going to affirm it at Harvest Bible Chapel as God's authority over our lives will allow what the Bible teaches to define what we believe about marriage. Unfortunately, in our culture, everything I just said somehow sounds hateful to people that have ignored God's definition of marriage. We don't say that because we're hateful, We say that because we love God, we love His Word, and we actually love people that don't even believe the way that we believe. That's why, number three, we will not be silent, but we will not be screamers. Amen? Amen. We're not going to be hateful about what we believe. What we're going to do is stand for what's right. And we're going to understand that if you are wrong in the way that you are right... You are wrong even if you are right. We can be right about marriage and wrong about everything else that matters. We're going to get it right. So we've got to be constantly trying to go for a balance between conviction and compassion as we share our message. And we understand that those who disagree with us are not our enemy. They are the victim of our enemy. And we were once the victim of our enemy and God set us free. And now it's our job. We are on a rescue mission to get those people that disagree and don't believe what God has said to understand that the safest place to live is under the authority of God's word. And so we're going to humbly remember that we too once disbelieved what God said and were rebellious and ignoring what God has said. And so what we will do is we will become A place that will welcome everyone who has a learner's heart, no matter how entrapped or entangled they are in any sin. This is the place for those people to come. We will not be silent, but we will not be screamers. Number four, we will be a refugee camp for those ravaged by the sexual revolution. So many people feel like they finally got what will give them happiness, satisfaction, and joy. And what we know as Bible-believing Christians is, despite everything I said about marriage, God did not design marriage, heterosexual or homosexual, to meet the deepest longings of your heart. Those longings and those cravings you have are for Jesus. They're just misdirected. So when those people who involve themselves in things outside the boundaries that God has set for marriage, when those people are finally bloodied and beaten and bruised by all of that sin they've involved themselves in, we will be a refugee camp for those people to come and experience the grace and the love offered by Jesus Christ in forgiveness. We'll be a place where repentant people can find a new start and a new beginning through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how we're going to respond. Can I get an amen? Amen. So, how does God heal a land? I want to give you three things. First of all, God persistently sends a messenger. In 2 Chronicles chapter 36, let me catch you up to speed before we dive into it here. As we said earlier, 2 Chronicles is a roller coaster ride. It's up and it's down. It's it's high points with God and it's low points in sin. And the last king that we studied here in the book was Josiah in chapter 34. Do you remember him? He sought God's face. He became king when he was eight. He began to seek God's face when he was 16. At 20, he was doing an incredible work of reform and purging of the land. And God used him to send awakening in that country. Well, in chapter 35, Josiah made a dumb decision. He got involved in a fight he shouldn't have been involved in, and he got killed in the fight. You get to chapter 36, and it all starts going downhill again and they start to decline, and they start to sin. It invites the discipline and the judgment of God. Rapid succession, he gives us four kings that are so worthless and evil, he doesn't even give us a whole lot of detail. And finally, we get to chapter 36, verse 15, and I want you to notice the condition of the land. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people. If you're not a believer, if you've never studied the Bible, and you have an idea that God is somehow not compassionate and gracious, would you just look at that verse? God loved these people so much. He was so compassionate. He gave them opportunity after opportunity to hear the message, believe the message, respond to the message, and divert his judgment. But it says here in verse 15, because he had been compassionate on his people, and on his dwelling place, verse 16 but they kept mocking the messengers and despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people. Stop right there. Now, everything we just read has happened over and over and over throughout the book of Second Chronicles. The people sin, it invites the wrath of God, God sends the wrath of God, they cry up, they repent, and they get back on track. But I want you to notice the last phrase of verse 16. Until there was no remedy. The spiritual disease that had infected that land was so great, there was no remedy this time. Now, that should have been the end of the Bible. That verse should have been the last one. It goes on and describes for us what had happened when God sent his wrath. This is what happened, I'll I'll let you know. So the, 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 the people, God's people, they were called Israel or Judah, a divided kingdom, and God sent his wrath through another country that invaded Israel, Judah. It was the nation of Babylon. And this is what they did when they showed up in the land. It says in verse 17, that they killed their young men. It says down in verse 19 that they burned the house of God. They broke down the wall. They burned its palaces with fire, destroyed all of its precious vessels. Then in verse 20, their religious freedom got taken away. They took into, what's that word? Exile. Have you heard that word yet? Exile. They were taken out of their land and transported to the land of Babylon under political oppression, and they were stripped of all of their religious rights for 70 years. And again, that should have been the end of the Bible because there was no remedy for God's people. But then I want you to look at verse 21. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, who is Cyrus? He's king of Persia. Where's Persia? This is what happened. Babylon had invaded and ransacked Israel and Judah. Seventy years later, Persia comes along and defeats Babylon. And what they find in Babylon are some exiles left over from Judah and Israel. And King Cyrus notices these people, and I want you to see what God did through the most unlikely source of an awakening. The first year of King Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up. Let's underline those two words, stirred up. Stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. He was a pagan king. He was a godless king, and yet God used a godless king to stir up his people. He made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, and this is what the writing said. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me, underline the word given me, he has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, you know what that means? that all authority is assigned by God. Every king, every president, every Supreme Court justice has been given authority by God. And he has charged me, underline that. So God has stirred him. Can you imagine the spoon that God would have used to stir the heart of a godless king? He stirs him, he's given him authority, and then thirdly, he charges him to do something that he has no choice but to do. God is still in the business of stirring kings, giving kings authority, and charging them to do something, whatever he wants them to do. And what did he charge him to do? He has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and this is what he invites people to do. Whoever is among you, of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go. What's the last word of the, last word of the book? Up. It's been a roller coaster ride. And yet, when. We thought it was in the tank when we thought they were at the lowest point. God stirs the heart of a king. He gives him authority and he charges him to spark awakening and then sends out the invitation. Now, it had been 70 years. You know what that means? The mommies and the daddies that were taken captive into Babylon had babies and those babies had grown up now. Maybe they're... 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years old, they had never seen Israel. They'd never seen the temple. They'd never heard the word of God. And yet through the mouth of Cyrus, he invites them to go back to be with God. He invites them to go up and be with God and establish worship once again. Let me ask you a question. If you were part of that generation, how would you have RSVP'd to Cyrus? Think about it. Would you have been too absorbed by the Babylonian culture to go back and worship this God of your fathers? Would you have been so bitter for uh, for God allowing you to live under political oppression, to believe that somehow this was a good God that you would want to worship? And yet there was, we're going to hear this word in a minute, there was a remnant that chose to go up and seek the face of God, to turn from their wicked ways, to pray and to humble themselves. And that's what we see next. Sometimes God persistently sends a messenger. Sometimes God occasionally stirs a king. In Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, the Scripture reminds us That the heart of every king is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it wherever he wants it to go. Anybody have a garden? You have a garden at home? You have to to water your garden. So you have to get the hose and you have to turn on the nozzle and you pick up the, the hose and you walk over to the petunias or whatever it is you grow in your garden and you water that. And after they have been sufficiently hydrated, you see the tomatoes and you're like, how much effort does it take you to do that? Is that a hard thing for you? No, to turn a stream of water, it is not hard for God to turn a king's heart either. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord and he can turn the king's heart Any way he wants it to go. I was praying along with many of you that God would turn the heart of nine kings on the Supreme Court that they would rule in favor of God's definition of marriage and yet there was one king short. Sometimes, occasionally God stirs the heart of a king and sometimes God makes us wait 70 years before he raises up a king. Either way, it is not a hard thing for God to stir the heart of a king. Here's the third way that God heals his land. God always revives a remnant. So we finished 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Aren't you glad you, you, you finished a whole book? So what's next? What's the next book? Let's look across the page. What is it? What's the book? Ezra. What's in Ezra? Let me tell you about Ezra, okay? Ezra is the sequel to 2 Chronicles. And I want you to teach you something about the Bible. You can impress your friends with this later, okay? Do you see the last two verses of 2 Chronicles? Do you remember we read those earlier about King Cyrus? You see those two verses? I want you to look at verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1 of Ezra. Do you see those? Anything look familiar? Verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1 of Ezra are identical to the last two verses of 2 Chronicles. The story continues. And let me tell you the way it continues. We're not going to take time to read it all, but let me tell you. The people did go up. A remnant did go up. And they rebuilt the temple. And they rebuilt the altar. And they rebuilt the place of worship. And when they finally got back there, they celebrated. And they worshipped God with all of their heart. There was opposition when they got there, so the work stopped for a while, but it restarted again and God ensured that the temple would be dedicated as the place of worship. Worship was restored. And then we finally get to chapter eight and Ezra comes on the scene and Ezra is a Bible teacher. He's familiar with the law of God. We don't know exactly how he knew, but he was one of these exiles, 70 years. he Maybe he had a secret copy of God's Bible, and, and, and he knew the law. So he went up and began to teach all those construction workers there that were restoring the temple, and they were so overwhelmed with God's word, they were living in wonderful harmony with one another until we get to chapter 9. And I want you to look down at verse 6, Ezra 9, 6. As prays a prayer. This is what it says. Oh, my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquity. What? Iniquities? I thought we were on a high slope. Now, our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. What is he talking about? I thought everything was fine and dandy, and we were, I thought they'd experienced awakening. What was this great guilt? What was he ashamed of? Let me tell you what it was. When the people started settling down there in Jerusalem, after the temple was dedicated, do you know what they started to do? They started to mess with God's definition of marriage. Look in verse 2, for they, speaking of some men, they Have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been the foremost. The sin was not interracial marriage. The sin was interfaith marriage. It was faithlessness to believe God's boundaries on marriage. And so after this great awakening and this spiritual high, all of a sudden a spiritual disease hits the land related to what they believed about marriage, And they began to step out of bounds. And Ezra was such a man of God, he tore his clothes and he fell on his knees and he wept over the spiritual sickness that had once again infected the people. And so he's grieving, but now look down in verse eight. But now, for a brief moment, think about that. There is a small window of opportunity for awakening. And Ezra sees it. He says there is a brief moment. Now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant. Do you see the remnant? What do you think of when you think of the word remnant? A remnant is that which remains after someone has tried to remove it. A remnant is a residue. Do you know what You and I are, if you are a part of the awakened people, you and I are the residue living in a land of sleepy people. As much as they try to push us to the side, as much as they try to pretend we don't exist, it's like a residue you can't get off your hands. We're still around bugging people. We're still around calling them to repent. You and I, I trust you are a part. I believe that what God is doing at Harvest Bible Chapel Granger is raising up a remnant, just like he did in the days of Ezra. He said, God has been faithful to leave us a remnant to give us a secure hold. What are we holding on to? What does a remnant hold on to? It doesn't hold on to political rights. It doesn't hold on to hope in the government. It has a secure hold, notice within the holy place we're holding on securely to the the authority and the sovereignty of god that's what we're holding on to that our god may brighten our eyes the darker the skies the brighter our eyes appear in the darkness We're the residue. We lift up our eyes to the hills. From where does our help come? It comes from the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth. We don't lift up our eyes. Our eyes are not brightened by a political decision. Our eyes are brightened by what we know is coming in the future, that King Jesus reigns supremely over all. So he brightens our eyes and grant us, love this, a little reviving It may not be all the reviving we want. It might not be a big tent revival, but just a little reviving. A few people who are true to God as a residue can experience a little reviving. Well, does that mean he restores our religious freedom and people start listening to us and we get Supreme Court justices that are Christians? And and is that what it means? Look at it. A little reviving in our slavery you talk about no religious freedom these people were slaves and yet god had chosen a remnant a small group of people to experience a little reviving verse 9 for we are slaves yet our god has not forsaken us in our slavery god is still committed to his people God is faithful to his people. We have hope. We we are the people of God. And we are indestructible until God is finished with us. We are the remnant. And it says, he has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection. In Judah and in Jerusalem. God has not forsaken us. No matter what's going on in your life, no matter what kind of punishment may be coming in the future, God is not finished. And do you understand that you are in a holy place where a holy God is doing holy things despite what is happening in our culture? There is a little reviving. There is a little healing of the land going on at Harvest Bible Chapel, Granger. You say, well, what's the evidence of that? How many of you were here last Sunday in the 11 o'clock service? Do you remember what happened at the end of the service? So let me tell you the story. There's this couple, if you weren't here, and um, first time I met them, they were sitting right back here on a Friday night. We were hosting the Art of Marriage Marriage conference, and they were here to soak all that in and to learn, and, and they had visions actually of getting married. They said, "We're not married yet." Well, she actually applied for a, a secretary position that we had open in the church, and she came in, and we noticed that um, they had the same address. They were living together, and so we called them in, and Pastor Matt sat down across from them, and very lovingly and very boldly said, "You're living together." Do you understand that's not God's way to do this? You're in sin, and you need to repent. And you've got basically three options. You can break up, you can stay together, but move one of you move out, or you can get married, and we can get that done like now. We can just just do that. And so this is what they did. In a week's time, they went down and got a marriage license. They showed up last Sunday, and they were just gonna have a little marriage ceremony in Pastor Ben's office when I heard about it. I'm like, no way, we're doing that right up here. So uh, at the end of the service, we had the bride come right down here, and we had bridesmaids, and and we we had Pastor Ben there, and they recited vows to one another. Till death do you part, you may kiss the bride. A little reviving. In the midst of a dark generation. God's not finished with His people. And He's not changing His definition of marriage. And we're gonna sink our roots deep into the Word of God. He has not forsaken us, not for a moment.
1: Wow, what an amazing story of repentance. So how about you? Has God identified areas in your life where you need to repent? If so, I hope that you'll take this moment and respond to God's working in your life. Well, thanks for listening today and we hope that you've enjoyed this series on revival and awakenings. You know, if you find yourself caring too much about what other people think of you, you'll wanna join Trent Griffith right here on Resonate for a whole new series next week titled Approval Addict. I'd also like to invite you to join us at one of our weekend worship services at Harvest Granger, Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. We're located on Hickory Road, just north of Cleveland Road in Granger, Indiana. Well, thanks for listening, and it's our prayer that God's Word will resonate in your heart and mind this week. Resonate is a radio ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel, Granger visit us online at harvestgranger.org.